If you want to revel in the wonder of the natural world while still asking tough questions about our place in that world, I'd like to tell you about a podcast you might enjoy. It's called Outside In. Hosted by Sam Evans-Brown, Outside In tackles a broad range of subjects, from the environmental movement's troubling links to the eugenics movement, to the fraught history between hydropower development and indigenous rights in Canada. Outside In tries to capture the joy that attracts so many of us to the outdoors in the first place. The show has taken listeners under the ice of frozen lakes, to peat bogs in the Arctic, and up close to patches of moss in your own backyard. Outside In features deeply investigated stories and the deliberately goofy. They've staged debates over which is the best animal and the best fruit, and tried to identify the fastest way a human could travel before the internal combustion engine. Outside In makes you think and makes you laugh. You can find Outside In in your favorite podcast app and at outsideinradio.org. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners in the U.S. Around Thanksgiving we tend to place a lot of emphasis on gratitude. We remind ourselves how much we have going for us, how lucky we are. And that's a wonderful thing to do. But let's face it, sometimes it's hard to feel grateful. Sometimes resentment builds up. Sometimes it's hard to see the good in life, even when things are objectively going pretty well. Today's story is about that kind of a situation. And it's about finding your way back to happiness. The story comes to us from a writer named Becky Jensen. Several years ago, she went on a life-changing journey. A journey that involved leaving everything behind and heading into the mountains. On this episode, she shares what happened. The story first ran in 2017, but it's just as relevant now as it was then. It's a story about relationships, with family, and with ourselves. And it's about what happens to those relationships when we do something just for us, something selfish. I'll let Becky take it from here. Last year, I ran away from home. But that's not what I called it back then. I called it my solo through-hike, my digital detox, my bucket list adventure. That looked better on paper, and for the image I was carefully crafting for myself, the image of perfect mom, perfect writer, perfect outdoorsy bride-to-be, living the dream. Telling the world that I wanted to escape my life was unthinkable. If I exposed that ugly truth, I might be seen as the selfish, ungrateful, and emotionally checked out fraud that I knew myself to be. And people don't need to know I'm depressed, I told myself. Nobody wants to hear about that. So they didn't. Plus, I thought, I shouldn't be depressed. I should be grateful for my life. 
My 15-year-old twins, Jake and Dane, were amazing in countless ways. My fiancé, Sam, loved me so much, he wanted to spend the rest of his life with me. And I had enough riding gigs to keep us fed, with a roof over our heads. But my ghostwriting and marketing copy felt phony and meaningless, and we were barely making it paycheck to paycheck. I was drowning under relentless waves of household chores and bills. Sam was about to lose his job, and to me, our relationship felt tired and detached. On top of that, I was dealing with insomnia and two scary biopsies. And at age 45, I had hit menopause early and was grieving the loss of my youth and a baby I could never give Sam. I felt uninspired and unappreciated, desperate and broke, old and broken. Sam knew I was depressed, but rather than ask what was wrong, he read my private journal. Yep, you heard that right. He read my journal. That act of betrayal snapped me out of my sad stupor and made me mad enough to do something for myself. Something so big and disruptive that I would finally have to pay attention to my own needs. I decided that the big disruptive something would be hiking the Colorado Trail from end to end. The Colorado Trail, or CT, is a 500-mile footpath between Denver and Durango. Kind of like the Appalachian Trail, only shorter and with mountains that are a lot taller. So tall, in fact, that by the time you hike the entire CT, you gain the same elevation as climbing Mount Everest, sea level to summit, three times. Ever since I was a kid, being outside in the mountains was a tonic. Whenever I wanted to sort out a problem, I'd head into nature for a day of trail therapy, and it always did the trick. But this time, I wasn't convinced that one day or one weekend of outdoor medicine would be enough. I estimated that if a day hike was like a short therapy session, then a 500-mile hike was like long-term rehab, and that's exactly what I needed. The few times I'd gone backpacking, I felt strong, free, and self-sufficient. So the thought of escaping reality for five whole weeks by myself, hiking the equivalent of three Everest summits while lugging a 30-pound pack, filled me with complete and utter joy. But I soon smothered that joy with guilt. I was leaving everyone and everything behind for more than a month, including my kids, my fiancé, my aging mother, my dog and two cats, clients, friends, work assignments, laundry, the neighborhood trash cleanup day. I mean, my God, what would they do without me? And what made me so special, I thought, to deserve such a big trip by myself? And how could I possibly ask the family I was abandoning to pick up the slack at home so I could run away. 
It was a huge request, and I wondered if I should scrap the hike altogether. But the through-hike had become my light at the end of the tunnel, a lifeline I was desperately clinging to. There was no question in my mind anymore. I had to do the hike. So to ease my guilty conscience, I asked Sam, Jake, and Dane to join me on the Colorado Trail for two days. Just two days, I reassured myself. I'll still have plenty of time for me. I rationalized the invitation as a way for us to bond in the outdoors and a way my family could share in my trail experience. They could bring the dog. They could deliver a resupply box. This was such a great idea. Fast forward to the day I left home and hit the trail. As Sam pulled the car into the trailhead parking lot, my head was still spinning from the tornado of planning, packing, making arrangements for my kids, paying bills in advance, all that stuff. I was like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, a dazed and confused tenderfoot in a foreign land, taking those first tentative steps on the yellow brick road. The landscape was in technicolor, the birds were singing, and I thought, holy this is happening. Sam snapped pictures of me next to the trailhead sign, and we confirmed plans to meet again in two days. Don't worry about a thing, he said to me at home before we left. I'll get the dudes all packed up. You just do you. I wanted to believe him, but Sam was forgetful and had a history of not following through on things. I dug the right heel of my orange trail runner into the ground to stretch a hamstring, and the bulk of my backpack nearly toppled me off balance. I steadied myself and looked up at the rather ordinary-looking but unknown path in front of me, a gravel service road that marked the beginning of the trail. I set off and I didn't look back. For the first time in a long time, I realized I wasn't responsible for anyone or anything except me. Everything I needed was on my back, and I looked forward to the luxury of writing in my journal each day. My nose tingled as I took a deep breath in and exhaled out through my mouth. And as I walked along, tears of sweet relief bubbled up, stinging my eyes as they mixed with sweat and sunscreen. The dirt road reminded me of my first home as a little girl, a hog farm in Boone County, Iowa. I love the look on a person's face when I say hog farm, and it's even better when I tell them I'm the youngest of 10 kids. What are you, they ask? Catholic? Mormon? Neither. Well, what are you then? Highly dysfunctional, I say. <laughs> you're the baby, so you're probably spoiled rotten, they often reply, and I bite my tongue. Being the youngest of 10 in any family, let alone a farm family, 
means you are anything but spoiled. It means you're a survivor, dressed in your brother's hand-me-downs, expected to act years older than your age. Being the youngest of 10 means you work hard to forge an identity. You work hard to be seen and heard. It means you work hard, period. This is probably true for most of my siblings. We were the product of what sister number eight calls farm parenting. We drove tractors, baled hay, and vaccinated piglets. We cracked walnuts with a hammer on the front porch. We learned how to use a sharp knife when grandma handed us a bowl full of apples and gave orders to start peeling. And we learned from our mistakes, like when the knife slipped and sliced into our small fingers. The lessons that stung like a blade in your hand seemed to stick the best. I experienced that and more by the ripe old age of eight. Our contributions were valued and we felt respected because we were included in the essential work that made the farm hum. Work equaled love. By the time I was nine, there were only three kids left at home and my folks moved us to Fort Collins, Colorado, the big city, satisfying my dad's lifelong dream to live in the West. I was a farm kid transplanted into the unfamiliar territory of the urban landscape. Self-motivated and fiercely independent, I morphed into a latchkey city kid, channeling my Midwestern work ethic into a thriving mowing and babysitting business. It gave me the spending money I thought I needed to fit in with the kids at school and hide the fact that we were dirt poor. On the CT, there was something familiar about being forced to adapt to the unfamiliar, and I soon found my stride. Day two on the trail, I marched through the relentlessly hot, exposed and charred moonscape of an area recovering from a forest fire. A mountain biker told me it was a punishing 100 degrees that day. I miscalculated my water and teetered on the brink of heat exhaustion when I finally made it to the next water source. After setting up camp, I collapsed in my tent with a smile on my face, feeling spent and satisfied that I had hiked 28 miles during my first two days on the CT. It was the kind of contentment that comes from pushing through something hard that recalibrates your limits. On the third day, I woke up feeling strong and resilient. I lingered over a cup of tea at camp where I sat and savored my solitude for a while. I eventually packed my gear and walked a short distance to a trailhead where I would meet up with my family. I arrived early, stripped off my backpack, and stretched out on the bench of a picnic table, basking in the morning sun like a lazy cat. I broke out my journal and giggled as I thought, what day is it today? A friend dropped off my family around lunchtime, and to my delight, Sam surprised me with cold drinks and cheeseburgers. You're lighter, Sam said. I knew he wasn't talking about my weight. He was describing my spirits, and he was right. Yeah, I said, I feel great. After we demolished the burgers, I realized there were no trash cans at the trailhead, 
and we would have to pack out the weight and mess of sticky bottles and greasy food boxes. I asked some mountain bikers if they would haul our trash home in their car. It took some convincing before they finally agreed, and I felt terrible for having to ask. I rejoined our group and checked to see if everybody had sunscreen. We forgot it, one of them said. So I dug a small travel size out of my hip belt and passed it around. The tube of sunscreen, meant to last four days until my Breckenridge resupply, was half empty when I got it back. We finally hit the trail and hiked an easy five miles to a sweet little camping spot by Tramway Creek. As we started to set up camp, I went into autopilot. Not the efficient autopilot of my new trail routine, it was the autopilot of how I operated at home. I attacked the chores I wanted done and I didn't ask for help. First, I gathered everyone's Nalgene bottles and headed to the creek to filter water for four people. Then I asked what the guys brought for dinner. I could tell by Sam's face that he was kicking himself or something. Oh, we forgot to bring sporks, he sighed. The good news was they remembered food. The bad news? They didn't bring the freezer bags they needed to mix the dehydrated potatoes with boiling water. I dug into my pack and pulled out my spare freezer bags and two precious freeze-dried meals I was saving for later. The expensive kind you buy at REI that are easy to make in the bags they come in. I tore the top off the first dinner from my special stash and glared at the words that were printed across the package. Savor the adventure. I set up the small pocket rocket stove, which boils enough water for one meal at a time. And one by one, I boiled, mixed, and served everyone's meal and shared my purple titanium spork. Please eat before it gets cold, I told them. I was in full mother martyr mode. I made my meal last and finally sat down, the consummate bump on a log. I chewed in silence. I wiped off my communal spork. I filtered more water. Sam approached me gingerly and asked, Babe, are you okay? I'm fine, I said. Everything's fine, just fine. I blinked my eyes and managed to force a tight-lipped smile. That night, exhausted, I crawled into my sleeping bag next to Sam's. We were elbow to elbow in a tent I had nicknamed the sarcophagus. I was all prickles. My family was annoying me, and I felt guilty for feeling annoyed. Then I felt annoyed that I felt guilty. Tomorrow is a new day, I told myself. My journal sat untouched in the side pouch of my backpack. The next morning, I put water on to boil. Out of habit, I moved Sam and the boys to the head of the line and made tea and coffee for them first. When I finally sat down to sip my own cup, I glanced up to see everyone standing in a ring around me, backpacks on, trekking poles in hand, 
giving me the classic, we're ready to go when you are, look. Sam saw the warning signs that Etna was about to blow and pulled me aside. The lightness in you, your mojo, it's gone, he said. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? I wanted to shriek in his face. I started to cry instead. To his credit, Sam wrapped me in his arms and suggested I stay put, enjoy my tea, and take some time to write in my neglected journal. He would take the boys and the dog down the trail, and I could catch up at my own pace. They took off, and I sat alone with my thoughts for a bit. Then I wrote the following in my journal. Day four. This morning at camp, it was like I was home again, with the same old self-imposed expectations and responsibilities, and I found myself swooping in to take care of everything and everybody except myself. This is bullshit. I may have mentioned this already, but I have a hard time asking for and accepting help. And when I'm struggling, I tell myself to suck it up, buttercup, because there's work to be done. When I hiked solo the first two days on the CT, there was no one else to put first except me. By inviting my family to join me on the trail, I had invited along family dynamics. I fell into old negative patterns of behavior and I buried my needs deeper and deeper. As I closed my journal, it dawned on me that Sam and the boys did not require fixing. I was the work to be done. Suck it up, buttercup, I reminded myself. You've got a long way to go. As I prepared to leave the empty campsite, images of my eight-year-old self flashed through my mind. I wanted to give her a big mothering hug, take her little hand in mine, and with a conspiratorial grin, help her cut to the front of the line. So what would happen if I dropped a few other hands so I could hold my own for a while? What would happen if I stepped back and let Sam and the boys figure some stuff out on their own without my mothering interference? The morning of day five, my family went home. They had been a welcome distraction from the change and inner growth I was both craving and also avoiding because it was hard. I loved my family, but visiting hours were over. I had deep work to do. Hey, it's Willow. We'll hear the rest of Becky's story in a moment. But first, if you are thinking about embarking on a through-hike of your own, or even if you just like to get out on day hikes, you might want to get yourself a Kula cloth. The Kula cloth is a high-tech pee cloth for women and anyone who squats when they pee. When you are out in the woods and nature calls, you don't want to have to use toilet paper all the time, at least not for number one. 
It's wasteful, it's messy, and then you have used toilet paper to deal with. The Kula cloth is the perfect solution. It's reusable, it's antimicrobial, and you can clip it to your pack in between uses to dry out. Kula cloths also make great gifts for outdoorsy friends and family members. Kula is one of our sponsors, and they have a special deal just for out there listeners. You can get 15% off your order at kulacloth.com when you use the promo code OUTTHERE2. That's K-U-L-A cloth.com, promo code OUTTHERE2. Support for Out There also comes from BetterHelp. The holidays are often a stressful time, and this year, things are even stranger and more difficult than usual. If you're finding yourself grappling with a lot of big feelings and everything seems too much, maybe it's time to get some help. BetterHelp provides professional online counseling to clients all over the world. They have specialists in all sorts of areas, from depression and anxiety, to family issues, to LGBT matters. When you sign up, they'll ask you a series of questions to match you with a therapist who can meet your specific needs. You can meet with your therapist via video chat, phone, or even text. Don't let things spiral out of control. Take charge of your mental health and do something that's good for you. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. And now, back to Becky's story. I spent the next month forging new relationships with fellow hikers, falling down and picking myself back up, and walking through life's next steps in my mind. I felt present, and my senses came alive. My alarm clock was morning bird song and I walked through forests echoing with the marimba-like sound of woodpeckers hammering the hollow trunks of pine trees. My views expanded and my perspectives changed as I hiked along the exposed spine of the Continental Divide. As I approached the Elk Creek drainage in the Wemenooch wilderness, rays of sunlight pierced through clouds to illuminate hanging lakes atop sheer cliffs and rolling emerald hillsides covered in a blanket of wildflowers. That particular place was so powerful, it literally dropped me to my knees. I sobbed as the most intense rush of gratitude swept through my body. Here I go to Durango, little Isaac Jane, with a big old pack upon my back, little Isaac Jane. I began dismantling my armor and turned inward, where I found my voice on the pages of my journal and in songs I made up along the way. I'm in the mood for freeze dry food, little Isaac Jane, had chili mac and a gas attack, little Isaac Jane. Oh, Liliza, Liliza Jane. Oh, Liliza, Liliza Jane. I can't remember a time in my life when I felt as free and joyful as I did on the CT. The support I received from Sam and the boys during these weeks made it possible for me to complete the trail 
They took care of the home front, and Sam met me at trailheads with replacement gear on more than one occasion. I can't thank them enough. But there's one more thing I need to come clean about. I did not end my solo hike alone. Sam joined me for the last 130 miles. My first marriage had ended in divorce, so I wanted to be sure that Sam and I were making the right decision to get married. I was having my doubts, and I figured the extreme togetherness of the trail would either make us or break us. One year earlier, Sam had proposed to me on a flat outcropping of rock with a clear view of Mount Garfield near Molas Pass. This was the only part of the CT I had experienced before my through hike, and now, as we approached the meaningful spot, Sam was reluctant to stop. I didn't blame him. He was shaking from the bone-chilling rain that had soaked through his worn-out rain shell, and he could barely talk. Sorry, babe, he said, giving me a quick kiss. Gotta keep moving. I'm not sure what I was expecting to happen at our engagement spot. Maybe a tender moment, or some kind of sign to reassure me that we were going to make it as a couple. Instead, we were both cold and numb, and I was less sure than ever that we should get married. That moment set the tone for the next few days together. The weather was terrible. Sam's gear was failing. I was pissy. He was sullen. Luckily, things did improve, quite a bit actually. When the sun finally came out, I decided I wasn't going to spend my last few days on the trail being miserable. I was going to savor every minute. By the time we reached the end of the Colorado Trail in Durango, I was on a natural high. I felt like I could do anything, and I was ready to conquer the world. My deep sense of self-worth was intoxicating, and I knew a powerful shift had taken place on the trail. I also knew that I couldn't marry Sam. I think back to Dorothy, the farm girl far from home, who overly mothered everyone in her path. When the time was right, she clicked her heels together and stepped away. Back at my home in Fort Collins, I looked down with affection at the shabby trail runners on my feet. They carried me to new heights and over such great distances. The tread is long gone, but I still wear them around town. They remind me that limitations are of my own making, and my inner wisdom is always there whenever I need it. I had the ability and the power to find my way back to happiness all along but nobody could tell me how to do it. I had to learn it for myself on the CT, and the lesson had to sting to stick. (music) 
Stepping away from home gave my relationships room to breathe, and it gave me time to reflect on my behavior and focus on how I want to live my life. While I was on the trail, I realized that I was judging Sam, resenting him for not being the person I wanted him to be. To me, he was and will always be a Peter Pan type, a lost boy with a big heart, ready for adventure, who might never grow up. That was enchanting for a while, but in the end, I wanted an adult, not a lost boy. Sam wasn't able to step up in ways that I needed in a partner and the boys needed in a father, and my days of enabling him were over. It doesn't make me a bad guy, and it doesn't make Sam a bad guy. It just is what it is, and we went our separate ways. Just as important as my realizations about Sam, I figured something out about my kids while I was on the CT. I recognized that I was doing Jake and Dane a disservice by being an overly accommodating mom. So I stopped. And sure enough, when I asked Jake and Dane to do more for themselves, they blossomed. And so did I. I like to call my new modified parenting style farm parenting light. All the flavor of a rural upbringing, fewer emergency room visits. Jake and Dane take turns making meals and washing dishes. Dane can sew a button on a jacket and bake bread. Jake is a recycling master and a laundry genius. We work side by side on volunteer outdoor projects, take the dog for long walks, and watch movie marathons together. Most importantly, my boys see me make mistakes now, and they see me own them and learn from them. Turns out that this hike, the thing I thought was so selfish, was not only good for me, it was good for my kids too, because they got their happy mom back. Together, the three of us recently planned our spring break road trip to Northern California. Jake and Dane packed their bags by themselves. I showed them how to pump gas and wash the car windshield. They took turns leading our snowshoe hike near Lake Tahoe. And about that perfect mom image, here's a clip from my audio journal. So do you remember when I said we were packing up and you were making your list and I said, um, you said toothpaste and I said, don't worry about the toothpaste because I've got it. You forgot it. I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) But... That's what trips are about, right? Not <laughs> so, brushing teeth? They're about not brushing teeth and eating. I go for weeks without brushing my teeth anyway. So, yeah. I forgot the toothpaste and made loads of other mistakes on our road trip. And guess what? We survived and had a great time. Our threesome functioned as a team. And when we got back home, I was lighter. I felt recharged instead of resentful. And for the first time in a long time, I was inspired to tell a story in my own voice. I found my mojo.
That was Becky Jensen. She's a writer based in Northern Colorado. You can see more of her writing at BeckyJensenWrites.com. And she's also had some other stories on Out There over the years. We have links to each of those stories at our website, OutTherePodcast.com. Becky is also working on a book about her through hike. And of course, we will keep you posted about that and let you know when it's published. Before you go, I have a few announcements. First of all, applications are open for our spring production internship. If you're looking to get your foot in the door in the audio world, this is a great chance to work on your editorial and production skills. You'll get to work with me on all aspects of producing this podcast, from reviewing pitches, to editing scripts, to doing sound design. There's even an opportunity for you to do a story of your own for the show. Applications are due December 10th, and you can find all the details about the internship on our website, outtherepodcast.com. Just click on our blog. Also, we have a special bonus episode coming out next week. We want to be change makers. That's Mercy Mafan Shama. And above all else, that requires everybody else to be a change maker, too. Mercy is the founder of a nonprofit called Wild Diversity. She's working to make the outdoors more inclusive, more equitable, more inviting to the BIPOC and LGBTQ communities. So I guess I would ask people who are listening in what ways they're being change makers and what ways are they doing their work now to create a more diverse outdoors that is welcoming and genuine and really supportive of the community. On Tuesday's bonus episode, we'll talk with Mercy about the change she's trying to bring about. And we'll talk about how you can help. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to check out the Best of Out There playlist. It has a wonderful assortment of Out There episodes, some of which have won awards and some of which are listener favorites. You can find the Best of playlist at outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager. Our interns are Anne-Margaret Warner, Stephanie Maltrich, and Kara Schaefer. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Stacia Bennett, and Ashley White. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you on Tuesday, and in the meantime, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.